Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode, Dick Beauvais has the latest on U.S. banks and downgrades and is out with a new report. He says investing in bank stocks over the past five years has resulted in lost opportunity and wealth destruction. Dick examines the more than $300 billion banks have spent on stock buybacks. Interest rates, loose accounting standards and stock buybacks are poisoning bank stocks, he says. We look at the good news and the bad news on the US economy. China has cut interest rates by 15 basis points as the economy shows more weakness. Russia has raised rates by 350 basis points as the ruble hits a 17-month low. We look at all that and more. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 82. Lots to talk about. Some significant and notable developments this week and overnight. Um... China, Russia, and the US. What a striking contrast in fortunes and developments. And Dick and Matt, your analysis and insights would be welcome here. China cuts its rates 15 basis points to 2.5%, 250 basis points. Their economy is weakening, spluttering by some accounts. Foreign investment opportunities are hostile, drying up by some accounts. In Russia, it raises its rates by 350 basis points to 12%. The ruble hits a 17-month low. So far this year, the ruble has shed 35% of its value. And then, meanwhile, here in the US, employment is up, wages are up, housing values are up, stock values are up, borrowing is up, and we seem to be floating on financial air We'll see how long that lasts. What do you make of the interest rate moves and what does all this signify to us? And when we compare the second largest economy in the world, China, at least measured by GDP versus the US and then Russia, what does all this add up to? Well, at the bottom line is, uh, you know, what we've claimed for uh, 70 or 80 years now, our system works best, right? In other words, we argue that the United States democracy, capitalism works. We argue that, you know, dictatorships, uh, you know, controlled economies uh, don't work as well. And, you know, I think today was a dramatic uh, indication that, uh, you know, our system is best. You know, in the the case of China, 
Xi Jinping uh, in the last couple of years with his statements, his writings, uh, and his uh, pronouncements to his, uh, you know, party uh, has indicated that uh, he wants to control the financial system. He wants to tell the nation where they should be putting their efforts, mainly into, you know, technological advances, where he doesn't want to see growth. He doesn't want to see large companies, uh, you know, develop that could be a threat to the Communist Party because they make billions and billions of dollars. He wants to see greater distribution of uh, income, according to him, uh, to to a wider swath of the economy. Uh, and he is tremendously hostile to, uh, in terms of the rulings that he's making, I mean, vi- verbally, in the last few months, he's changed his tune here. But in the rulings he's making, he's very hostile to foreign investments. He's telling, you know, American companies, if you have a division in, a, in, in China, you cannot send the information, you know, from that company back to its parent company in the United States. He's, you know, putting people in jail uh, if they do what we consider to be normal holes of, uh, you know, consumer sentiment to see what they like and don't like about the product that's viewed as being espionage. So the net effect is he's created a system. And uh, again, I'm, I'm going to use foreign affairs, uh, you know, in a couple of uh, times in, in talking about this stuff. He's created a system which is hostile to foreign investment. And foreign investors are now thinking about or rethinking their willingness to put money into that country. And that, I think, is showing up as part of the reason that China is doing so poorly. One of the things that Matt talks about uh, on multiple occasions is unemployment among the young people in China was over 20%. Well, apparently it's gotten so bad that the Chinese government is now refusing to reveal what the number is. They have uh, polit- they have publicly stated that from this point forward, they're not going to indicate what their unemployment numbers are. In the case of Russia, uh, this uh, Prigozhin, uh, you know, mutiny, uh, he certainly wasn't trying to take over the government, it was a mutiny, you know, apparently has had a much deeper impact than we understand. Uh, and again, there's a fabulous article in Foreign Affairs about this also. But essentially, um, you know, if you take a look at the uh, polls, you know, Putin's uh, popularity is growing and growing in Russia. If you also look at the polls, you know, the, the feeling of the Russian people, uh, their nationalism is coming to the fore, and they now want to crush Ukraine. It's got nothing to do with anything but, you know, this is Russia, and we can't be beaten, and we've got to defend, and we've got to crush Ukraine, and we cannot deal with uh, these Western imperialists trying to uh, make incursions into, uh, into Russia. There was actually an article uh, in which you know, the Russian press argued that uh, a volcano in Yellowstone was resulting in people emigrating out of the United States and into Russia. So, you know, Russia is, you know, behind the scenes, apparently in turmoil. It's affecting the currency. The currency is dropping so low, it's affecting the economy uh, because inflation will soar. And therefore, Russia had to, had to make this move up to 12%. Now, we've got plenty of problems, too, but we're nowhere near where they are. Our system, in fact, is best. I would just point out, you know, that both Russia and China, if you go to any source other than, you know, the U.S. media and the U.S. government, are really doing a lot better. Well, sorry, let's differentiate. Russia is not doing as badly in Ukraine as the Western media would have us believe. 
And, you know, if you, if you only read New York times and, and LA times and get your news from CNN, you would think that at best or at worst, the battle in Russia is, you know, like a stalemate, sorry, the battle in Ukraine is a stalemate, which it kind of is, but it's a stalemate deep into Ukrainian territory. You know, to this day, they still control Crimea, um, you know, which they took over during the Obama administration. Um, they still control South Ossetia, which they took over during the George W. Bush administration. And now in the Joe Biden administration, they're taking over the Donetsk region. While it is a war zone and that's not good for anyone who lives over there, the idea that this stalemate, because the territory they got in the first few weeks is basically the same border that they're fighting over today. And you know, we, we waited all spring for the, the spring surge and and the counteroffensive, which is supposed to, you know, change the war, but it didn't really didn't. So if I'm sitting in Russia and you've been listening to Putin give his speeches about, you know, this is about reclaiming Russian citizens to their homeland and 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 restoring, you know, wrongs that were, you know, putting back in place things that were taken from their our people centuries ago or decades ago, and it seems like it's working. And yes, he's maybe covering up the number of deaths and the amount of GDP that it's, it's hurting. I, I can see why the Russians are pretty positive. And if I were Ukrainians, I'd be kind of despotic. China, on the other hand, what Dick is saying, talking about, you know, the news that they're no longer publishing unemployment figures as if, you know, people on the ground can't feel it. I mean, you know, we talk constantly in, in our podcast about, you know, the unemployment numbers in the United States and how we perceive it in our own life. And, you know, we, we, go into detail about the BLS numbers and and the census numbers and whether they're right or wrong, but we're not out there saying like, oh, these are total lies. Unemployment is 30% and and people are on the street are despotic. Like we know that jobs are, sorry, workers are scarce because when you go past a 7-Eleven, you see, you know, for hire signs offering $20 an hour, you know, almost 300% the minimum wage. Like you can see it with your own eyes that we have a labor shortage. And the idea that the Chinese when your kids are living at home, bored and depressed because they don't have a job and the government is telling you everything is fine, well, you know everything is not fine. My final point, which is more of a concern, which is these demographic trends, um, Peter Zihan has talked about how Russia had to attack Ukraine this year. Like it was almost his last chance to do it before the dem- demographics got so bad that the young men that you know have to be the people that go to battle were going to be demographically so rapidly declining that he had to go while he still had people to fight. And China's going to get to that point too, if they're actually going to make a move on Taiwan and this unemployment issue, you know, could be solved through a war. It could be solved through military. It could be solved through lots of ways. But apparently, they're not trying to solve it by growing their economy and creating domestic demand. Got to come in here, Matt. Uh, you mentioned Peter Sihan, and we mentioned it um, a couple of episodes ago. Um, the plunging um, fertility rate or the plunging population in China. I think it's now at around 1.4 billion. Peter estimates that there's a hundred million less than is officially reported um so they have really serious demographic challenges i don't know if the fact that their population is declining that that should not be an excuse for any nation to invade another nation obviously yeah it's not it's not an, it's not an excuse but you want to attack you know what what was the famous phrase from Donald Don Runfeld in 2000 three when he said you go to the army you go to war with the army you have not the army you wish you had or you, you might have at a future date well he was talking about go early go hard you know because you, if you wait until you have the perfect army you'll never have the perfect time the contra what peter zihan is saying is 
if your army is going to be in decline, if your population is going to be in decline and you want to make a geopolitical move while it's advantageous, you do it before the decline is in full swing. Yeah. And, and, and just picking up on China and, and Dick, you, you, your thoughts, because you've looked closely at China and you've had some interesting takes on the banking sector, um, foreign born staffers being pushed out, it seems like, um, record use, unemployment, deflation. Uh, a struggling property market reports China may spend billions of dollars in infrastructure uh, in China. That's the latest way uh, that's coming out of China now that they may try to shore up their slumping uh, economy. And we saw real estate developer Country Garden Holdings, one of the latest trouble spots. But foreign investment is slumping in China, into China, as that money goes to other countries such as the EU countries and into the US. And we've lots of examples where some of that foreign money is being redirected into the US economy. Uh, So China has, it it seems to me that the rules of engagement since COVID have changed. We had supply chain issues, we had geopolitical tensions. So that redirected the thinking of big money. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the key themes of these podcasts, going back to the very first one. You know, we're basically arguing that there's a huge shift in money flows in the world economy, which is being made necessary because we cannot trust the supply chains that we've been using before. We cannot rely on Southeast Asia to be the manufacturing hub of the universe, which it is at the present time. We've got to shift it back to, you know, Western nations. And and essentially, that's that's what we're saying will happen. Now, it has not happened, right? Manufacturing is doing very poorly in the United States at the present time. But that's what we're arguing will, must and will happen. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the population thing, you know, we, we talk a lot about the companies that are losing population, but I want to continue to put emphasis on the fact that there are a number of other countries which are exploding in yep. their population growth and that they're in uh, what they now like to call the the, the uh, major south or something like that, but India south and in uh, in Africa. And therefore, that, that shifting in where population is coming from will ultimately result in the shifting into where the dominant nations are going to be in the world. And I think that's that's something that we need to concentrate on also. Um, and, and, you know, basically, China, you know, if you want to look at it over a 15, 20-year period, they made the decision 20 years ago to invest this huge surplus that they were getting in trade into the building of real estate in China. They built whole cities capable of holding, you know, millions of people. And it became a, a, an international joke for reporters to go through these cities and show how they're modern, new, and up-to-date, but there were no people in them. And, the, and there were no people in them because, you know, China was investing in them under the theory that people ultimately would move there. Well, the people did not move there because people's incomes didn't rise fast enough to pay for these these new pieces of real estate. And, and there are dozens of cities like this all through China. So where would he stand now as a result of that? The bank, these these real estate projects are not paying off. The banks have these loans, which means, in my view, if the banks actually did what the U.S. banks do and write off their bad loans, 
the banks in China would be bankrupt, in my view. All right. Wow. So because they just they just don't write off their loans. So China needs foreign investment. And yet they've taken this very belligerent attitude toward foreign people coming into their nation with, you know, with all the things that have been happening in this period. So, you know, they've closed themselves off. You know, they invested too much money in real estate. They're trying to protect the banking industry, which is in deep trouble. And they're they're not attracting foreign investment because they want to project China's power, you know, on the Belt and Road or or throughout the South China Sea or, or whatever they're trying to do. And it's not working for them. It's not working for them. And, and that's why they cut their interest rates twice in the last couple of months while we're raising our interest rates. Uh, it's, it's why their economy is not doing well. It's why their youth is not employed. Uh, and, you know, it is, it, is go- it is going to become a tinderbox in that nation. I remember, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago, I, w- I had a, a, a lunch one-on-one with the CEO of Citigroup at the time, Chuck, Chuck Prince. And Chuck Prince said, you know, people don't know but there are 65,000, you know, uh, minor upsets in China every year, uh, which, is, which is not being reported because people can't get jobs. People are not being taken care of. Now, that may, since that was 15 years ago, whenever it was, you know, it, it may no longer be the case today. But if this situation continues, these young people are not going to sit at home. Their parents are going to say, get out and do something, get a job, what have you. The jobs aren't there. You know, the foreign money is not pouring in. The ability to, you know, control manufacturing around the world is slipping. China has got a problem. It's got a major economic problem. Banking system is a problem. Its real estate industry is a problem. It has a lot of problems. It is not the monolithic company uh, country with with a, an economy that's going to wipe out the United States. It just isn't that. It, it isn't what it's represented to be. And of course, it should be noted that uh, China is a relatively poor country, especially if you go out into the rural areas, which are still underdeveloped. Um, I, I don't know if this is turning out to be a bad joke, but Be Beijing earlier this year declared 2023 the year of investing in China. They better step up the investing because it's it's slumping. They did that. They did that specifically because the uh, foreign investment was slowing down. Now we've talked about, as you just mentioned, we've talked about the fact that you know Goldman Sachs and and uh, City group and, and uh, you know, Morgan Stanley are pulling out of China because the opportunity for investment there is is dried up for foreigners to some degree. And, you know, what Xi Jinping did not realize when he initiated all of these, uh, you know, new programs is that money would go away. And China didn't have the ability to replace the money that was going away with, you know, internal income generation from consumer demand. So then they changed their tune and they said, come to China. It is a good place to invest in. You know, we we welcome you. And then after they did that, they put this rule in place which said companies cannot report their results to their parent companies in the United States or Europe because that's espionage. So, you know, they, they don't have it right. And hopefully, from my perspective, they don't get it right. I, I think the world would be a better place if they got it right. And you know the whole the whole trade You're right. You're right. Yeah. back You're right. in ninety seven ninety eight. You know I was not fully following this stuff, but I do remember 
remember the WTO meetings and talking to people about like, you know, Bill Clinton. And he was carrying on the the view that George H.W. Bush had that was carrying on the view that Reagan had that if we could open up the Chinese economy um, by letting them in to the WTO and generating, you know, regular trade with them, that one, it would get China rich, which I think has been demonstrably true. Um, as much as John mentioned, you know, the the, the rural West and, and the and the wealth gap, 80% of the people live within two or 300 miles of the Pacific Ocean. And those are the areas and the regions where, you know, the wealth has been abundant. And, you know, I've been to China numerous times, I think five or six times in the last decade. Every time I go, it's like you're going to a brand new country because it's so different from the last time you went. They have gotten extremely wealthy. And the idea was they joined the WTO, start having interactions with Westerners like us or me or, you know, anyone that goes over and you know, Elon Musk comes and Zuckerberg goes and, and Bill Gates goes. And, you know, Bill Gates was one of the first um, individuals to be allowed to invest in China from, from the outside. And the idea was that this would plant the seeds of a freer, more open society. And, and we weren't growing our enemy, you know, from green shoots. We we're growing a, a trade partner. And part of it worked. You know, like one of the reasons people talking about a breakage between China and, and the U.S. is because they are, are the linchpin for so much of the raw materials that our manufacturing relies on. So much of the, um, the, the Joe Biden, or what do they call that? The Build Back Better Back, the Inflation Reduction Act that is supposedly, you know, trying to turn our, our energy sources from, from dirty to clean, from, from, from fossil fuels to green. You know, something like 95% of the solar panels have, are almost entirely sourced in raw material or completed form from China in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the defense contractors saying that it would be a disaster to them if there was war with China. And, you know, I think the world would be a much better place if if China got their act together, did some sort of like normal, regular stimulus to their, you know, starving, not starving, but, you know, closed pocketbook consumer and, and try and get their economy to be stronger and healthier. And, you know, I, I've, I've always thought, and I still hopefully believe and I'm losing faith that eventually the Taiwan situation would figure itself out without war because ethnically and historically they they have a lot of links um you know if you go and pull up on Bloomberg terminal you can pull up the the app called fly and you'll see 35 flights a day between Shanghai and Taipei they are very closely linked countries this is not you know the United States and Cuba where, where they're enemies. The, the, I've read stats that upwards of 25% of working males in Taiwan have work permits in mainland China because that's where the money is. And so there, there are ties to be grown and there are ways to do it. And I'm not sure when it took a turn because at the beginning, Trump was talking about how he's good friends with Xi. And by the time Joe Biden came in, you know, China was hoping that he would reverse all of the sanctions that Trump put on, but he's kept them in place and made them actually even tighter and stronger. And it seems like we're heading towards a conflict. And I would I would hope that China figures out and America figures out because I'd much rather not have any conflict. Yeah, no, you're yeah. obviously right about that. But the point is, you know, going back to Nixon and Kissinger, you know, when they uh, opened up China uh, to the to the Western world, theory was, as you as you clearly expressed it very very correctly, that if we allowed China uh, to uh, work, you know, with the Western world, 
world if we brought China's economy up to where its uh, potential was, that China would uh, therefore become less jingoistic, it would become less, you know, uh, you know, abrasive. Uh, but we did bring them up to where they needed to be economically. But rather than they becoming less jingoistic, they became more jingoistic. Yeah. And that's why, you know, Trump took the steps that he took, why Biden is not stepping back. But you're right. In 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 an ideal situation, Nixon, Kissinger, and you are all correct. It is much better if China does well. It is much better if we work uh, with China in a better situation. But they don't want to play the game, uh, and and that's that's why I think that maybe if they they go through a rough patch here, they'll they'll uh, open up their eyes and decide they can't take the course that they were taking. They've got to take the course of peace and uh, you know, if you will, trade initiatives. That's the way to solve China's problem, not not going to war in, in, in Taiwan. Completely true. Peace and prosperity and lots of trade. Um, China is now pledging to offer overseas firms better tax treatment and make it easier to get visas. We'll have to wait and see. Here's a good stat, US investment boom. And the Wall Street Journal has done a breakout on uh, these shifting sands, as it were, the shifting mindset on foreign investment. Last year, the U.S. took in about 22% of global foreign direct investment versus 13% in 2019. And we see these overseas players breaking ground in, in major metropolitan areas. BMW just broke ground for a new battery plant in South Carolina. Panasonic of Japan uh, is building a plant in Kansas, and there's tons of those examples. We may credit in part or in whole the CHIP Act and the um, Inflation Reduction Act, and just this whole idea that we just need to become more manufacturing-oriented once again. I feel like China's reaction is just another opportunity missed. You know, they never miss an opportunity, miss an opportunity. If they want foreign investment to grow, you know what they need to do? They need to make it clear to companies that their assets are safe, that their IP is safe, that their workers are safe, that there's a legal system that they can rely on. Lowering taxes and increasing business visas, well, you know, everyone sees those articles about the Canadians and every now and then it's an American, but it's often Australians, Canadians, British citizens that just get arrested and then their embassies are working trying to figure out what it is and it's some sort of vague accusation about spying or whatever. And then it has to do with, you know, some other issue somewhere else in the world and China's you know, flexing their muscle by arresting business people. Like stuff like that just is so deadly to your reputation when people don't want to go to your country. You know, you didn't mention it, but there is a stat that I saw yesterday in the paper that said last year, foreign visitors after, or sorry, year to date, foreign visitors after they've reopened the country to guests is at 55,200 visitors from overseas so far this year. Before COVID, they're averaging close to 10 million a year. People don't yeah. want to go. And it's not because they're, the visa is hard to come by. It's because they don't want to be there because the country doesn't look from the outside in like it's a safe place to visit. And it sure as heck doesn't look like it's a safe place to invest. And what they could do to restore their, to build a national reputation is build an international court system founded on Western principles, or at least open principles based on the rule of law with an independent judiciary. I think those would make much greater moves to welcoming people than just lowering a few taxes here and there. So, Dick, I'm, I'm curious your take on deflation is as struck in China, hit a raw financial nerve. Of, if it continues, what do you see is the outcome? I think of this yield curve control that Matt has mentioned frequently. Are we going to see that as being one of the solutions or how does it all play out? 
I think in China's case, it's clear that what they need to do two things. I think Matt explained it pretty clearly, but I think the two things that they have to do is they have to uh, open up uh, financially uh, to the rest of the world again, the way it was, you know, uh, when, when Nixon and Kissinger went over there, number one. And number two, they've got to uh, get, you know, consumption inside the country to grow. They've got to get more demand uh, from their, their own consumers and if they do those two things, then basically, presumably, their economy will start to come back. And what is, I guess, perplexing is why, uh, given the fact that it would appear that there's enough savings in the hands of Chinese citizens, why they're not spending it, uh, why they're not going out and spending money the way, for example, Americans are going out and spending money, uh, and whether they have a fear of the system also. In other words, that their money could be taken away from them. I, I don't know what it is, but, uh, you know, if, if they could get demand coming from consumers in China, if they could reattract foreign investment to continue to build their manufacturing and natural resource strengths, China would recover. They, they seem to be more interested in, in running ships around the South China Sea and, and blustering in front of Taiwan and, and, and doing these laws which, you know, make foreign investment bad. But so I clear what they need to do, whether they're going to do it or not, I don't know. Dick, you have a report out and um, it's sort of like good news, bad news on the domestic front here back in the United States. You look at the CPI and the unemployment claims. Um, the CPI rose 3.2% annually in July, up from 3% in June, but below economists' expectations for a 3.3% annual gain. And then um, you look at unemployment claims. And of course, today we had the retail sales grew by 0.7% in July, better than the 0.4 estimate. What does it all mean? Are we headed in the right direction? This good news, bad news. I think I'd like more of the good news and less of the bad. What I started off with saying, you know, a few minutes ago was um, the reason why this recession hasn't developed is because people are working. They're making much more money than they have been ever making. And there's more people working, making more money than they've ever made. If you take a look at the value of their houses, despite the fear that Housing values would drop, you know, a couple of quarters ago. Housing prices are going up, so their wealth in their home is increasing. You know, the stock market has been very congenial, so the wealth in their investments are increasing. <clears throat> if you're, you know, older, you you now can get a, a money market fund which is paying you five percent. So your 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 income is is grown appreciably from what it was, uh, you know, a year ago. If you're a retiree. Uh, and you, you, you're borrowing more money. So as, as, as long as people, you know, are in that condition, and if, if you take, uh, if you will, automobile and gas out of the, the retail sales, they were up 1% today, right? So, so the net effect is if that continues, the U.S. economy is going to continue to grow. Uh, and therefore, we're seeing in the unemployment numbers, you know, not just the unemployment stat that they put out, but the uh, the unemployment claims numbers that people are not increasing the unemployment claims. So if, if we look solely at this one way of looking at the U.S. economy is how strong is the consumer and does the consumer have the capability of continuing this game? The answer is clearly yes. 
Uh, the offset to that argument is, well, you're talking about the wealthy consumers. You're not talking about the people who are, you know, living, you know, near the poverty number, which keeps going up each year. And, and those people are running into trouble and they borrow too much money and they, they're going to uh, run into d difficulties. But uh, consumer is the key to the American economy. The consumer is doing really well right now. So the American economy is doing better than any other economy in the world right now. Sorry, we also had more stimulus than any other con economy in the world. When when Joe Biden first got into the office, I mean, first off, under Trump, we had those two major stimulus packages, the PPP, and I can't remember what his second one was called. And then um, I believe Joe Biden in March of 2021 launched uh, Restore America, the Restore America Act, or American Recovery Act, which you know wrote checks to every person in America, basically, and especially if you had kids, you could get up to a few thousand dollars. And then you have the Inflation Reduction Act, which I think is a funny name for for debt spending to to grow <laughs> a inefficient <laughs> energy project throughout America. But by, by and large, all of this money is contributing to people feeling like I don't. I can quit my job. I can get another job. Um, it gives you license. You know, I don't. I, I, we talk about it a lot, but like since 2020, almost every single house in the country has gone up dramatically yeah. in value. And so when you're, if you were a homeowner, and I, I take Dick's point correctly that you know the poverty. If you're not a homeowner and you're renting, is this doesn't apply to you. But if you're a homeowner, you know, and and your basic wallet, like let's say you're making the average sixty thousand dollars a year, and you're spending you know fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a year on on consumption, and inflation you know jacked you up by twenty percent, like everyone did everyone else. So now you're spending twenty four thousand dollars a year. That kind of sucks. But if your house went up fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, mentally your your mental math is I'm still ahead, and it yeah. gives you a lot of confidence when you see that unemployment is 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 low and the consumer is still spending. Dick is totally right though that you know spending at one percent that's starting to feel like a slowdown. You know, and and calculus you'd call that the second derivative where the acceleration is declining. Um, and once acceleration decline commences, then actual decline commences. And if we get to a spot where retail sales starts going, this could unwind rather quickly. It, it's amazing how fast we bounce back from COVID and that we're still going strong. And, you know, everyone's excited about soft landings, but I did a Google news search going back, you know, to like the 1940s, just typed in the word soft landing. And the, the decade that came up with the most articles was the late 1970s. So, um, you know, be careful of what, what we predict. On the retail sales, is it too early to tell the that, that number 0 0.7 inflation adjusted is, does that put a different spin on it? That maybe sales aren't yeah, growing? Yeah, that's, what I, that's, that's my point. Yeah, yeah. No, in other words, when you have retail sales growing at 1% and inflation growing at 3%, your real sales are down. And there's something called the Red Book, which I've never been able to to really get my hands around uh, to, to understand how it functions. But apparently, they're arguing that on a store-for-store store store basis, year-over-year, year, uh, sales, in fact, in real real goods is down, if not up. But, you know, we count GDP, you know, in, in nominal GDP in, in, in the numbers that are, that are produced. And right now, people are spending, people have jobs, the economy is moving forward. I know uh, these events are fast moving and it can change from hour to hour, but you have been sort of um, committed to this idea that the Fed will keep raising rates, stick, that inflation isn't beaten. Are you still holding to that? Has it anything out there to change your opinion? No, I think I, I don't think the Fed has yet reached the point where it's going to uh, 
stop raising rates. But I mean, obviously, in September, it doesn't look like they're going to do anything. Um, but 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 you know, the Fed has eased off in one major fashion. They promised that they would take active steps to re- reduce their balance sheet, uh, and they did initially, but they're not any longer. I mean, basically. The Fed's balance sheet is is dropping, not because the Fed is doing something, but because um, the two major providers of funding for the Fed, uh, which is uh, the banking system, which is number one, and number two, the the United States Treasury. Uh, The United States Treasury uh, dumped a huge amount of money in. 500 billion in the months of June and July because they were covering, I guess, from the, from the political battle that occurred, uh, you know, before that time about not raising the debt limit, uh, and and now the Treasury is starting to take money out. Banks, on the other hand, were losing deposits uh, because they were unable or unwilling to pay, you know, market rates for those funds, and the banks have now stabled that situation. They're still losing deposits, but they've it's stabilized somewhat, so they're starting to put money in. So what we're seeing is that the federal the Federal Reserve balance sheet is moving up a little or down a little based upon what the Treasury decides to do this week or what the banks decide to do this week. They're not it's not moving because there's some policy decision made concerning what we should be doing with the Fed balance sheet at the moment, uh, and and therefore I guess we'll slide into September without any major change in uh, in, in interest rates. But uh, I do think that the inflation. Well, I think it's going to stay low. I think that you got to take a look at housing prices. I think you got to take a look at uh, oil, energy prices, gasoline prices, natural gas prices. I think you got to take a look at medical care prices. Uh, and that's more than half of the CPI. And, and you can see that uh, it, inflation is not dead. Interest rates, loose accounting standards, and stock buybacks are poisoning U.S. bank stocks. You have a new report out on this, Dick. Uh, Makes great reading, and uh, one of the takeaways, investing in bank stocks over the past five years has resulted both in lost opportunity and wealth destruction. Yeah, it's 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 amazing, isn't it? I mean, we've (laughs) gone through one of the strongest periods of uh, growth in uh, the stock market in history, for one of the longest periods in history, when you take a look at, and I just decided to go back five years, I could have gone back further. Uh, when you take a look at uh, what's happened over the five years from the middle of 2018 to the middle of 2023, you know, to the second quarter of 23, bank stock prices are down. Not only are they down, but if you look at year over year in each one of those five years, in four of those five years, bank stock prices went down. So it, it's it's mind boggling. How can that happen? How can you basically, you know, have a roaring economy, a roaring, uh, well, it wasn't roaring during the pandemic, but, you know, a strong economy, strong, you know, financial system, and bank stock prices keep going down. We've isolated three reasons as to why we believe that's happening. Um, and we can talk about each one individually, but the first reason is interest rates went up. Now, everybody, I think, when they were in diapers, was told that if interest rates go up, financial asset values go down. But nobody believes it in terms of their actions, right? In other words, if, if you take a look at the Federal Reserve and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, who should believe it more than anybody, they didn't do anything when they raised interest rates. The Fed didn't. Federal Reserve did, not the FDIC didn't raise interest rates, but they didn't do anything 
They didn't go to the banking system and say, look, interest rates are going up. You know, you've got to start to protect yourself with hedging policies. You've got to start selling, you know, some of your financial assets, which are fixed rate in nature. You got to stop putting, you know, a lot of fixed rate stuff on your balance sheet because you got your asset values are going to decline if you do that. The Federal Reserve did not tell the banks that. The FDIC did not tell the banks that. The FDIC went in and audited these banks, uh, and and they they said explicitly in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, oh yeah, we saw what was happening. We we, we knew it all the time. We knew that you know the value of their their assets were going down. But they didn't do anything about it. They've been put in place to do something about it when they see that happening. But they did nothing, similar to what they did in the Great Recession uh, in in two thousand six, seven, and eight. They didn't do anything then either. So, so the net effect is rising interest rates has caused the value of bank assets to fall. The decline in the value of bank assets has caused the equity of banks to fall. And if you buy bank stocks based upon, you know, the uh, book to stock price ratio, you're going to find that you should not have been buying bank stocks. And in fact, bank stocks did fall and people should not have been buying. That's just reason number one. You mentioned, of course, the use of faulty but acceptable accounting standards. But another interesting one, um, deposit costs and flows. When the Federal Reserve raised interest rates, been on this campaign in the first quarter of 2022. You say it did not consider the fact that the banking industry had over $20 trillion in assets and the yield on the industry's earning assets was only 2.7%. You can discuss that, Dick, and maybe the second point as well. Yeah, well, well basically, you know, that, that's that's the core point from the first point, which is, you know, you, you, you've got a banking industry which has, you know, this massive amount of assets. And these assets are yielding 2.7%. And you go on this aggressive campaign to start raising interest rates to what? Having a quarter, five and a half right now, I guess, is the, is the Fed fund indicator. And, you know, the banks can't adjust $23 trillion in assets fast enough, you know, to make enough money to pay market rates on deposits. And if they're not going to pay market rates on deposits, you know, individuals and companies are not going to keep their money in the bank. If you can get money uh, in the treasury market as an individual and a company at 5%, why are you keeping money in the bank at 1.5%? Well, you got to keep a certain amount of money there because that's how you handle your transactions, your business, you know, your operations. But, you know, that that money, which is not the day-to-day required money that you need, but the investment money that you need slips out of the banking industry. And, and that's what is happening. It's not ended. It's something that which is happening. All right. The second problem is that, you know, w- when you buy stocks, you take a look at the income statement of a company, or you're supposed to take a look at the income statement of a company and its balance sheet. And you're expecting that the numbers in that income statement and that balance sheet are correct because they've been audited by one of the best auditing companies in the United States. And because, you know, They've been accepted, uh, you know, by the tax authorities, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what if the numbers are not correct? What if the numbers are blatantly incorrect, wrong, fallacious? You're not going to buy stock in that company. Now, the banking industry is publishing income statements and balance sheets, which are blatantly incorrect. And, you know, I like to pick on Bank of America, I guess, all the time. But, you know, Bank of America claims that it has all these securities 
that are invested in treasuries. And it shows what they believe the par value of those securities are. But the securities they show in a note to their balance sheet are really worth $109 billion less than what they're showing they are in their balance sheet. They've got $260 billion worth of fixed rate mortgages. Those mortgages are yielding 2.95% at the end of the second quarter uh, of 2023. those, those mortgages are not worth par. Those mortgages are worth substantially below par, and yet they're on the balance sheet as par. So the, 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 the point you know, here is, if I'm an investor, wh- why am I going to put money in a company which is hoodwinking me in terms of its financial statements, even though those financial statements are accepted by the accounting industry? I'm not going to do it. You know, comparing Bank of America to Silicon Valley Bank for me as a as a you know not not a bank analyst like yourself, I'm you know I'm just kind of taking my gut reaction to what you're saying. Is when you saw Silicon Valley Bank, it didn't matter until there was a bank run, and all of a sudden they had to they were forced to mark to market. You know, there's a lot of industries that don't mark to market. You know, the insurance companies come to mind, life insurance companies especially are no you know they they buy a lot of long dated paper, and I bet they're book value is in completely underwater right now but it's 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 a pat it's a quilt work of laws and regulations that say hey if you're going to hold it to maturity and it's highly rated and there's no reason to believe that there's going to be a default and your assets match your liabilities and that's what you're trying to do does it really matter and when i hear you talking about bank of america and, and i feel the same way when i hear you talking about the fed you know those are two entities that are too big to fail the government will bail them out. The government will save them at the last day. At the end of the day, they're going to print the money to save them. Silicon Valley Bank, on the other hand, was following similar rules, not marking to market. And some investor noticed, put something on Twitter, you know, privately called all their friends in Silicon Valley, and it, fret, it spread like wildfire that Silicon Valley Bank was in trouble. Get your money out while you still can. And a lot of people did, which then led them to announce a capital raise along with selling assets, what came with an extremely shocking write-down, which then accelerated the decline. So it's kind of like this confidence game where it doesn't matter until it does. But for Bank of America, it won't matter because they're too big to fail. They're one of the designated banks that, that the government has different rules for. And so if it doesn't matter, and it can never matter to Bank of America, why should investors necessarily care that it it's, you know, in your words, misreported because they're following the rules. The rules are trying to match assets with liabilities and trying to add stability to a system that, like you said, does have volatility built within it, but it's not safe for any banking system in the world to have, you know, every bank mark to market every loan on a day-to-day basis, then publicize it so that their investors and their depositors can get scared. The idea is to present stability. And it seems like it adds to a more stable society having that. My bigger issue is it seems like the the country, the United States government is telling the world, we don't want regional banks. We don't want small banks because we have different rules for big banks. So the goal is to become a big bank or get out of the way. Let me make three points. All right. Sure. All right. Number one, uh, let's assume I walk into Bank of America and I say, look, I I bought these stocks uh, for $100,000 and they're worth uh, $75,000 today, but I never intend to sell those stocks. So and you lend me $90,000 against the par value of those stocks. That's not a fair comparison. We're talking about AAA U.S. No, it's AAA U.S. Treasuries holding to maturity where you know 
you go to the penny what you will get on what well, I'll, I'll, get. I'll get i'll get i'll get to that point second okay i just want to get to the first but point which volatile is, stocks aren't a comparison to u.s treasuries i i got a house which i bought for such and such i bought a car for such and such and you're I, probably up a lot yeah but whatever the whatever the asset is right bank of america will not lend you money against what you paid for that asset it will lend you money against what that asset's current value is but bank of america is going into the marketplace jp morgan chase wells fargo you know all these companies are going into the marketplace and saying lend me money against what i paid for this stuff do not lend me money you know do not consider what it's actually worth now you know maybe that's fair Bank of, I Bank feel of like America. you're spinning this. It's like a washing machine because they're not physically going out there and saying, hey, look at all these treasuries we have on our balance sheet. They're going out there with you know decades of financial statements saying this is our balance sheet. It is what it is. It's not. is. They're not hiding the ball. Everyone right. knows about the mark-to-market rules. All right. Well, I'll, I'll let people make their own decisions, all right? You know, whether it's fair for the banks to borrow money against false numbers and it's not fair for you or I or the corporation to. But the second point that you made is it matters when it matters. And it matters today for this reason. If you're getting 2.95% on $260 billion worth of uh, mortgages, you cannot go out and pay 5% for deposits. You can't do it yeah. because you're not earning yeah. the money to do it. So the net effect is you're, you're going to lose deposits. Yeah. And Bank of America, in fact, is not paying market rates for deposits because they've got all these securities and these loans which are yielding well below the market. And therefore, the logic in forcing these banks to show what the actual value of their assets are is that you start to match their actual return on those assets to what they can do in the marketplace. And what we're going to see as a result of their not marking to market and their paying low deposit rates. And, you know, what we're going to see is this. 1,083 page comment that was put out by combination of the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the Office of the Control of the Currency, which is going to force these companies to raise their equity dramatically. All right. So, in other words, the government has said, I had it with you not showing me what the true value of these assets are. So, if you want to show the value of the assets, what they are, do it. But we're going to ask you to put a higher percentage of those assets into equity because we don't trust you, all right? We don't trust you, and we've got a lot of history of American banking going back to the First Bank of the United States, which means we shouldn't trust you, all right? So so the, the, the net effect is I, I do believe that, you know, we are in a situation where it does matter. It does matter what the value of these assets are because it does matter what the return on those assets are because that's what, you know, in, in the third point is what, what what's now happening, and and before this podcast opened up, I've been you know corresponding with someone at Bloomberg about you know an, an interview that they're going to do this coming week uh, with with Daniel Tarullo, who was the very strong uh, you know vice chairman of the Federal Reserve under uh, you know Obama, and, and who I think went way off the track in terms of warning regulation, but. The point, the point said, I hope you ask him this question, uh, because I know what Tarullo's answer is going to be. You know, if you move loans out of the banking system into the non-bank system where they're not being regulated anymore, where the companies are not being regulated anymore, is that highly risky to the American financial system? 
And you have to move the loans out to the non-bank system if you're going to have to raise all this equity. I know that Tarullo, if if this question is asked, I know that he's going to come back and say, when I was the vice chairman of the Fed, I believed in macro prudential regulation of non-banking companies, so much so that he went after GE and he went after Metropolitan Life Insurance, and they both got out of the industries that they could be regulated in. So I do think it matters at the present time. But if I'm a stock, you know, going back to the simple example, if I'm buying stock, I want to know from that company what their real, what their real financial condition is, and I'm not getting it from the banking industry. That's why Moody's downgraded them. That's yeah. why Fitch said this morning that it's about to downgrade J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, and it's and it also said it's about to downgrade dozens of banks, and that's why we wrote this report, you know, uh, over the weekend, over the last weekend, in which we said that th- this is poison. You know, it's, you're poisoning the banking system. Dick, do you think philosophically that banks should report mark to market on all assets um, quarterly or annually or something like that? No, they can't do it. They can't do it, but they can do better than they're doing. In other words, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot. You know, if, if uh, I was a regulator, would I go to the bank and say, look, I don't care what you say or what you uh, about how you're going to hold them. I want you to mark to market everything every quarter. That would be disastrous. It, it would not be a good idea. However, I do believe that if they put a limit in which they say, if you have an asset which is now worth 10% less than what you paid for it, then you got to market to market. And, you know, we'll give you a point in time to hedge against that asset so that you can come back to us and say, I'm not going to sell the asset, but I got this hedge on the asset. And therefore, you know, it's a neutral, it's a neutral rate. All right. You know, there are things that can be done, which the FDIC and the Fed did not do, which the we even know, nobody even knows that we have an officer of the control of their currency anymore, which regulates all the national banks. They did nothing. They, they don't even have a permanent, you know, director. But I mean, there, there are things that could have been done that should have been done. But marking to market everything every quarter would be the wrong thing to do. I agree with that. I agree with you there. As I was asking you your opinion, I I feel like if my if my official view would be heard, it was I feel like banks should be regulated like utilities, where there's the independent body, you know, that kind of goes in and governs and rates them as healthy or unhealthy, and you know. And, and that it's not left to the consumer to determine whether or not their bank is healthy. Because if that, if if the regulator had come out and said Silicon Valley Bank is healthy, everyone's fine, and no one had seen the mark to market issue, it actually would have been fine. I'm going to ask you a dirty question. Sure. You have to mark to market. Does this firm have to mark to market everything? <laughs> yeah, we're under a different regulatory governing <laughs> right, body. Right. You but have yes, to do we, it. We, we are allowed. We, we're required to mark to market, and we do it daily because of the regulatory yeah, body. Daily, you're marking to market daily, and they're not marking to market over a five-year period. I mean, or thirty years. Yeah. So I don't think that's fair because I work for your company. I don't work for their company. I think it's unfair to us, and I think it's you know it's wrong for them to get away with it. We're talking about duration risk here, Dick Rice. Um, you mentioned Moody's and the analyst report from Moody's, uh, I think it was last week, uh, when they cut the ratings of 10 US banks and put some large names on downgrade watch. It sums up what we've just been talking about in large part. US banks continue to contend with interest rate 
and asset liability management risks with implications for liquidity and capital as the wind down of unconventional monetary policy drains system-wide deposits and higher interest rates depress the value of fixed assets. End the well, quote yeah, from, from Moody's. Yeah, that's it's a valid statement. It's what we that's what we just were talking about. That doesn't to me it's not, not right. Uh, and I think Fitch, you know, uh, according to a, a press release they made to CNBC this morning, I think Fitch is ready to make the same statement. And I think, therefore, that you know this request for for, for comment that was put out by the three regulatory agencies is going to come back, you know, with a lot of comment. But they're, they're going to do it the way they, they laid it out, and that's going to be raising the uh, equity requirement of the banking industry. And I think that the banking industry is going to try to avoid this by shrinking. Because, you know, if, if I'm Bank of America, I'm not going to go out and, and try and rise this, raise this massive amount of common equity. Let me take, let's forget Bank of America. If I'm Wells Fargo. I'm not going to go out and try to, you know, raise this massive amount of equity that they may hit me with. What it was easier for me to do is just shrink. I'm going to get rid of my loans. I'm going to reduce the amount of uh, deposits that I take in. I'm going to take a, a, a lower security portfolio, uh, you know, position. And I'm going to do that because if I shrink, they can't ask me for more equity. And, and you know, I'll tell you for a fact that that's what Fifth Third is doing. That's what Regents Financial is doing. I believe that's what Truist is doing. That's what U.S. Bank Corp is doing. These banks know it, understand it, see it, and, and understand that they can't go out and raise huge amounts of equity, but they can avoid reaching, uh, raising huge amounts of equities if they shrink. All right, so now what happens if they shrink? Somebody else has got to make the loans. Who's going to make the loans? The, the non-bank financial companies. And that's why I would love to see Tarullo ask that question, what do you think about the non-bank financial companies that are unregulated, you know, now making the largest percentage of loans in the United States? Because already in the mortgage market, they, the non-bank financials, which are the mortgage brokers, mortgage bankers, they originate more mortgages than the banks do. Is that good for the United States? I don't think so. Is it good for the for the United States if, in fact, you know, if, if you were to take what we do, what I do every once in a while is I take all of the debt in the United States and I break it into two categories, you know, the bank debt and everybody else's debt. Everybody else's debt is not being regulated, except, you know, brokerage companies are. The, the bank debt is being regulated. Well, the non-regulated debt continues to grow. So if we have a recession, what's going to happen in the non-regulated debt area if no one has been regulating it? Nobody knows whether it's any good or not. You know, this evergreen loan thing, which is very constant in the non-bank area, an evergreen loan means uh, I call a bank and say, I can't pay the interest on the loan this week. So the bank says, okay, we'll pay it for you and we'll just add it to the size of your loan. Those evergreen loans are going to explode like, you know, Fourth of July firecrackers, you know, if, <laughs> if we get a recession. You, know, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. So, you know, we are building risk into the financial system. And I think it goes all the way back to you got to show honest financial statements. You got to show them. So repeating the obvious, we've heard about it, tighter uh, lending conditions in, in the uh, traditional bank sector and then the non-banks picking up that business, but that increases and exacerbates risk in the financial yeah. system. 
which could have very serious long-term consequences if we if we do have um, a recession. It, yeah, it's going it, it's going to be really it's really going to be worse than a, uh, a soft landing would be if you know basically they don't get these loans which are outside the banking industry under some sort of regulatory control, and, and that's one thing that Daniel Tarullo strongly advocated. Um, you know, more strongly than I thought he should. But the point is, I think we're now coming to grips with whether his issue is correct or not. But this, I, I raised the third point, right? Are we talking about stock buybacks? Yeah, yeah. That was the third point, words, just quoting from your report. Over the past five years, the banks have exacerbated their equity problem by buying back stock. That, that's what you're driving at. Right. Yes. Whole concept. That's shaking his head. Know. Yeah. The whole concept. I know. Nobody. Nobody agrees with me on this one. All right. But let me see if I can get a little uh, glimmer of agreement. Number one, the theory of buying back stock is to raise the stock price. Right. You're going to raise the earnings per share number. You're going to raise the return on equity number, and the stock price is going to go up. All right. So these companies go out. And if I included J.P. Morgan, which I didn't include in my report, you know, it, they bought back four hundred billion dollars of stock, and five years later, their stock prices are lower than when they started. So it didn't work. You know, you may argue that all these other factors in the world, you know, you know, caused it not to work. But the fact of the matter is that they paid, they took four hundred billion dollars out of the bank, they handed it to people. Who don't want to own the stock of the bank anymore? They said, "Good luck, Charlie. Go buy your Microsoft, your Facebook, you know, your, your you know, Tesla. But you know, you're you're gone from the banking sector. Now, let's just and, and it didn't cause their stocks to go up. It did not cause their stocks to go up because we've got five years of record. You know, in in year over year, it, it, you know, performance. These stocks went down in four of the five years." Right, and obviously they went down for the whole five years. All right, so now what if they kept that four hundred billion dollars? Well, the first thing is we we said, all right, let's calculate it. Let's assume that the four hundred billion dollars stays in the banking industry. Then what happens if they get their normal return on equity? Their earnings would have been one percent higher than they actually reported. But that's not the way it would have worked. Banks leverage their equity 11 to 1. So if they're going to keep $400 billion in equity there, they're going to leverage it by bringing in $4 trillion worth of assets. If you apply the return on equity to $4 trillion and say, what would the earnings of the banks be? I don't care. Take half the return on equity of these companies. Take a quarter of the return on equity of these companies. If they had put that money to work in the banks, with the normal leveraging ratio, with the normal return on equity, their earnings would have been hugely higher than they are at the present time. I'm shaking my head at the beginning of that question is because every company that goes bankrupt, and I was thinking of Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, the, their share buybacks over the last four or five years is matched perfectly with the amount of debt that they're filing for bankruptcy for. And I just shake my head because it's like, it's such short-termerism. I, I don't, I'm not advocating that the rules should change. I'm not advocating that the laws should change. It's just it's crazy when you get these management companies that you know they're they're issuing debt to buy back equity to you know apply leverage to a company that otherwise is a great American business, and it's just a disgrace. And it's a disgrace in every industry when they're doing debt when they're when they're on you know su supporting stock buybacks through debt. 
you know, are, are you really telling the world you don't have better investments to make? Like that's how good of a manager you are. Right. I don't know. I feel like every time a company announces a big stock buyback, that's great short term, but you, you know, that's a big red red flag that you don't you don't have um, long term thinking Buffett style competent management. Dick, what's the number three hundred billion? in the buybacks 300 billion was the number i used in my report but i did not include uh jp morgan jp morgan bought back 89 billion dollars worth of stock i included jp morgan and it would have been closer to 400 billion uh and i only used 38 banks in my study of the 105 banks that i actually looked at so 400 billion is is a a more valid number over a five-year period over a five-year period wow these are great numbers Great numbers. Uh, we're, we're out of time, sadly. We've covered the globe uh, on this episode, and we covered the China, Russia, Europe, the US, and lots more on the banks. And we will be back again next week for episode 83. Until then, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.